Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of Dean Discussions, the podcast for players and DMs alike, where we cover a wide variety of topics to help you with your games. I'm your host, Ryan Reeder, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Ben Bellhoff. How you doing, Ben? I uh, could be better, but that's okay. That's a story for I, a different I, I heard day. you were a little, little under the weather. Uh, oh, no! Yeah, getting there, but uh, you know what? I have that's a good a, immune system, my uh, healing factor is kicking in, and uh, I'm gonna, gonna do okay. All, all you need is a long rest, right? Hopefully. Just Hopefully. One, one long rest cures everything. I mean, unless I'm cursed. <laughs> then... <laughs> unless you're cursed. <laughs> well, that's not all. Uh, joining us this evening is the wonderful Sadie Lowry. Hello, Sadie. How are you doing tonight? Hello! I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Sadie is a huge um, contributor to the tabletop RPG space. Uh, an editor, a designer. Uh, we are so excited to have her with us tonight to hopefully share some of her knowledge and stories. Uh, so might as well just get into that. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your background uh, in the space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am... My mind just went blank. <laughs> so I am a I am a writer editor. Um, I I for a long time I was an editor by trade and a writer as a uh, by hobbyist I guess. And uh, that's definitely kind of flip flopped around the TTRPG mm. space a lot. Um, I started in the space by writing for the uh, RPG uh, Write Your First Adventure workshop, um, and since then uh, I have written a lot uh i've written a lot of adventures um contributed to a lot of projects and then i uh, cut my teeth on editing um and now i'm at the point where i'm one of the two main editors on mcdm's arcadia so i'm getting to edit really cool ttrpg material every month which is amazing which um, we will definitely talk about later yeah yeah i i am i love that magazine so much it's so good <laughs> Um, but yeah, I come, I come from a, a long background of like writing and editing. Um, I'm an editor at a book publisher. And before that I was editing for, I mean, recruitment companies, um, a travel magazine, um, a scientific magazine. So I I've been in words a long time in one way or another. That's awesome. You got the full spectrum. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Science to travel to RPGs. Yeah. It, it's. It was it was a lot. I know a little bit. The thing is, I can't remember most of the scientific papers that went through because there were so many. So um, I worked as an editor, uh, editorial assistant and a little bit of editing at the Western North American Naturalist. Um, and it was like really cool. But also, I could not tell you what they were studying anymore. It's been so many years. I'm like, ah, uh, animals, scrub brush. <laughs> I think <laughs> so. So much scrub brush. So, so with the editing, does does that come with a lot of like learning and research just going into not only just your your main editing stuff, but having to learn some about the, the topics that you're editing on so you know what is yeah. right and what's not? Yeah, actually. So at my last job at a book publisher, uh, the two the two categories that I worked the most in are, were uh interior design architecture that kind of thing we called it home reference because it encompassed a lot of things and also cookbooks and so 
uh, I actually started watching a lot of Netflix shows like about interior design. I started reading about interior design and I would watch Netflix cooking shows. I mean, I was already doing that anyway because I love Chopped and Chopped like, is great. Great British baking show. Oh, but, yes. <laughs> but, you know, in order to be a good editor, yeah, you kind of have to take in a lot of the the topic and just so you know that if something sounds a little bit of off, you can flag it and just ask the author, where, where can, where did you get that? I'm not sure about that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I figure it's going to be one of those things. It's like, Oh, uh, five gallons instead of five cups. Maybe you did a typo there. Some, <laughs> something different, <laughs> like slightly different. Slight difference. Yeah. You, you start to get a sense for these things. Um, I'll tell you a, a cookbook tip uh, that not many people know. If something says, five cups chopped peanuts that means that you chop them before you measure them it's five cups <laughs> chopped peanuts but if you say five cups peanuts chopped comma chopped that means you measure out five cups and then you chop them and that's that little difference will actually make a huge it'll make a big difference in how many peanuts you have and that's so interesting. you won't you don't know how many times you have to go back to the author and be like which one is it? Because we have to know. I do not believe that there are that many peanuts in this dish. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about editing work because when you when you say editing, a lot of people probably think, oh, you're fixing typos or adding punctuation or something like that. But it is it's actually a lot deeper than that, uh, and it's it's a very important piece of the overall publishing thing. Like you could, I, I could go, I could write something and throw it out in the DMS guild. Uh, and it might be okay. Maybe who knows, but if I don't have anyone else look at it or play test it or edit it, uh, there's likely to be far more mistakes. Uh, because from what I've heard, at least it's incredibly hard to self edit your own stuff. Yes, yes, it's very hard. Um, so there, there are a lot of levels to editing, and the goal of each of them is is largely the same, which is, is can the audience read this and understand what they're reading, and come away with no complications? But but the, that takes that manifests differently in different types of editors. So when I go in to edit something, you start at a macro level, right? Like the big zoomed out level where you say, okay, I'm going to read this start to finish. Does it make sense? Um, do I have any questions about the plot? Is there anything in here that seems like an inconsistency or something that the author overlooked? Does it feel like this villain is kind of like like clever and cunning on this page and then you go down here and he's acting like a complete goof like is there something that he glaringly overmissed or like the glaringly overlooked um you know it's 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 filling in the little holes does this make sense and then you kind of zoom in a little bit like okay is each section now is it achieving what we want it to achieve if i have a section called adventure background Okay, does that distill everything that the DM needs to know? If I go through the adventure and there's some and I go, wait a second, 
I don't think I saw that explained anywhere. I need to make sure that goes back in the adventure background because the DM needs that up front. And so you're taking each section. Is a section accomplishing what it needs to accomplish? Then you're getting down on the paragraph level. Like, okay, we're not skipping... We're not skipping, like, subjects or points of view or weird things in this paragraph. Um, You'll see paragraphs in the TTRPG space that kind of flip-flop between talking to the DM and talking to the player. You want to be consistent on that. And then you finally get to the sentence level. Is this sentence clearly conveying what I need it to convey? Is it... Is there any chance that it will mislead somebody? Is it correct? Is it grammatically correct? Um, And do the ideas flow smoothly into each other? Or does it feel like it's kind of jumping and like jumping around oddly? And it's, it's kind of this exercise in looking at something and going, what is the author trying to do? And can I help them do it in the most clean, consistent, effective way possible? That's, you know, like, first of all, that's an incredible task to do because, as you said, starting especially from a macro level and just going, you know, digging down, um, I find that, you know, whenever I write something, of course, I I write in my own voice. And yeah, that's totally not the best way for, uh, you know, some sort of reference material for, say, if I was publishing on DMs Guild, you know, I don't I don't want to have sentences in there like, oh, yeah, and then you totally do this and then this happens. And blah, you know, it's like, no, yeah. no, that's that's a very bad way to, to convey that information when you're trying to, you know, um, walk someone through something that, you know, you've created and designed. You know, it's like yeah, on the left side, there's trees over there. Um, no, you can do better than that. And, you know, like punch it up and everything. And just the idea of. Uh, you know, being able to do that and really, you know, look at everything, you know, very analytically finding holes and kind of pushing things through is a, a, a very noble task that I don't think a lot of people really understand how important it actually is. It's a lot. Yeah. And there's stuff that you pick up just by doing it. Um, there's like, I was talking to another editor, Scott Gray, and asking him about doing developmental editing in adventures because, uh, he's, he's had a lot of experience in that. And I, I'm still learning and growing in that area. And one thing he pointed out something to me that I had never even thought of. It was, it was like, what is the monster doing in like, he, he basically said, why is the monster static? Like if you're if you're dungeon crawling, right? And the monster the module writes that the monster is in one room and they don't leave that room ever. Even no matter what the PCs do, you will only ever encounter them in that room. Why? You have to have mm-hmm. a reason for that. Like is it because they're doing a ritual and you don't want to interrupt them? Is it because they're sleeping? Is it because they have set up a clever trap and they're just waiting for the PCs to walk into it? And it's so some of it is just learning to find those holes like, oh, yeah, we do need to explain that. Uh, And that comes from a lot of experience reading things and going, what's working? What's not working? Why would this NPC tell the characters this? What reason do they have to say that? Are they just monologuing? Are they just expositing? Because we need them to exposit. Um, And then, you know, some of it is very, very technical. Like, um, you know, I have so many editing books back there. That's like, you know, did you, if you have, if you're ever like, oh, I could write the sentence this way, or I could write it this way. If you have two that are equally good, choose the one that puts the, the next idea at the end of the sentence. So if I'm saying, you know, 
I'm going to struggle to think of an example sentence now. But like, if I want, I don't want to say like, Sadie is coming on the podcast with Ryan and Ben to talk about D&D edit, to do, talk about D&D editing, unless the next sentence is about D&D editing. If the next sentence, though, is about Ryan and Ben's podcast, then the sentence is stronger if it reads, Sadie is going to talk about D&D editing on Ben and Ryan's podcast. They started their podcast back in da-da-da. And it's just little things like that, picking up. That's super interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. again, it all, it, like, the, you do that if they're equally well written. If they're not, you pick the one that's better written. But just knowing, researching those little quirks, uh, looking for misplaced modifiers. Um, like, that when is the of, best time to use an EM dash? Uh, the best time to use an M dash is always, uh, and always. you can tell James and Tricasso I said that. <laughs> That's something I see come through my Twitter feed all the time. So I had to, I had to inquire about it, about, uh, about the, it is, is that, is that how it said M dash? M dash. Yeah. N dash and M dash. Cause it's, it's longer. It's an M yeah, yeah, or yeah. an N. Gotcha. Okay. Um, okay. But, um, <laughs> I do maintain that the M dash is the most versatile piece of punctuation. Don't ask me about that unless you want to spend the next 10 minutes talking about that, but I will take that to my grave. I have a beef with the M dash, but that's only because of the program that I work with. It auto translates to it, but then it doesn't recognize it. It's crazy. Are, like, are you talking like for programming? Yeah, it, it breaks yeah, no. everything. Oh, no. that can, yeah, those those can okay. break a lot of things. Okay, I'll give you yeah, that. Yeah, that's the we're, only we're beef okay. I have. Everything else yeah. is perfectly yeah. fine, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's that's uh, that's actually a good transition point. So uh, you mentioned that you were one of the two main editors for MCDM. So this is uh, Matt Coville's uh, production company. So uh, they've done all sorts of things from Arcadia, which we've talked about before, uh, Strongholds and Followers, Kingdoms and Warfare. They put out some custom classes, the Beast Heart, uh, the Ill Rigger, who I actually got to play uh, a few months ago in our little interlude. It's so much fun. So much fun. That's um, so cool. So that was, so that was super fun. Uh, so what's it like doing, because that's a very focused uh, type of content. It's, it's very RPG and at least so far specifically D&D 5e. So how how does that work um, as being being one of the two main editors of of that MCDM content? Arcadia is is I think one of the most interesting places to be an RPG editor because it's very author first, uh, which means that you know if I if I were to go edit for Wizards of the Coast and I were to get a piece from them, it would be company first, right? And everything would 100% match their wording and everything would uh, be in incredibly tightly written and, you know, it would be incorporate a bazillion levels of playtest feedback and it would grow and shift and ultimately come out uh, being the company's piece. Whereas MCDM and Arcadia specifically is very, no, this is the author's piece. We're putting the author's name on it. And this is what they have to contribute to the 5e world. And which means that every month I am getting something that is so completely different from the last thing and completely different from anything I will ever have again. Um, 
And it means that we have a little bit more flexibility on how things are treated. Like I, I got to use my cookbook editing experience in one of the last issues for uh, Rudy Rudy's article. I cut off its snout because it was about harvesting and cooking up monsters. Yes, yes, yes. And like you'd never see that format in Amazing. an official five e book, but I got to format it to look like recipes. <laughs> um. And so it's it's a little bit more, you have a little bit more creative freedom. You have a little bit more of the author's voice coming through. I, I don't edit down strongly the author's voice. I try to keep their voice throughout, even if I'm trimming and con- making concise and that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's just amazing to see what everyone is passionate about enough about to bring to Arcadia you know you get some articles and you can tell that this is someone's pet project you know this is what they are passionate about and you can really feel that bleeding through and you're you know my goal is to make sure that that is in its strongest most passionate most clear concise uh you, you know its most powerful form by the time it gets to the audience. And that's a huge privilege, I think, and a huge honor for me to get to take someone's heart and their passion and to 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 help deliver that to Arcadia's audience. Yeah, just polish it up a little bit. And there you go. It beats even faster. And it, yeah. Yeah, it totally works. <laughs> now, uh, whenever you do come across things that you know need to be, uh, you know, reworked slightly, do you have issues with the authors, or do do they go in kind of understandings like, oh, you're actually helping improve and and push everything? Because I'm I'm assuming you're not going in and just slashing things left and right and <laughs> and you know just being um, cruel like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there's a very substantial edit, often James will go back to the author and say. He'll go, I like that. Let me just make sure the author's cool with it. There, I've never had an instance. I'm crossing my fingers that this never happens. I've oh, never I'm had sorry. an instance <laughs> where someone has like come to me and, you know, said, you slaughtered my baby. <laughs> um, there have been a couple of articles that I remember taking sort of a stronger editing hand to just for the language, just going, okay, this is really wordy or this is really, mm. you know, Something that I see a lot in authors is they have so many ideas in their head that they'll actually kind of, they'll put so many ideas in a sentence that it becomes a weaker sentence because it's so wish-washy and it weaves from thing to yeah. thing. And and a strong sentence, strong is a very vague word to use for editing, but a strong sentence has a very clear idea and is impactful and in order to get a strong sentence, you can't wander too much. And and you juxtapose those, you know, of course, with wandering, flowery sentences. You don't want everything to just be strong sentence, strong sentence, strong sentence. But there are sometimes where I do a fair amount of cutting because I'm like, I know what you're trying to say and what you're trying to say you want this to be strong. And so I am going to cut the word count of the sentence in half so that it is as strong as you want it to be. And I have thankfully gotten good feedback. You know, I most of the time when I interact with authors, they go, thank you for helping my ideas shine. Thank you for helping me yeah. say what I wanted to say. I've been very blessed in that way that my interactions with the authors have just been wonderful so far. 
Yeah. And I mean, we can totally see it just from the, the passion that you have about, you know, speaking about the editing, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're never there to cut the content. And and that's the, the biggest thing that I think that, uh, you know, some people might have an issue with, you know, you're there to really just make them shine. And that's great. Absolutely yeah. love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, from everything I've heard, uh, MCDM seems to be a very, a very gold standard in a lot of ways for um, for writing and authors and just kind of all around working with the people that they hire to actually make something work and make something that, like you said, the people are passionate about, which I think is super cool. It's not necessarily just like, okay, I just got hired. I got to, to I'm making money. I got to think of something cool. It's what cool ideas do you have? Pitch that to me. What yeah. are you excited about? What are you passionate about? Okay, write about that thing. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I, I think uh I think I remember someone saying once about James. Maybe I said this about James. Someone said this about James, but James makes people excited to create. And he he brings out the the part that that childlike part of them that says, Yeah, this is really cool. <laughs> And I love that. I love being a part of something that makes someone go, this is really freaking cool. You know? <laughs> yeah. And for, and for those that don't know, this is uh, uh, James is the basically kind of the head of Arcadia, right? Yeah. He's the editor in chief of yeah. Arcadia. Yeah, I've I I I follow him on Twitter, and he he usually has a lot of whenever he goes off on like a, a thread about design, it's always very interesting to to see the perspective taken because he he's actually and uh, we we can even have some links to this. He worked with Roll Twenty to develop uh, his very own RPG called Burnbright. Burnbright is, is very good, yeah, super cool. So it's that's a uh, it's more of a sci-fi uh slant um game wise and it, i believe it's like a roll 20 exclusive type mm-hmm. system and so but yeah he, it's it's a ver- person who very much gets design and so having that is is probably super cool to have that and in, in a boss <laughs> essentially yeah it's fun to talk about design with him i remember he and i went back and forth on we kept going back and forth on this one ability in my last article the angelic ancestries and we just kept going back and forth because like he wouldn't be happy with it and then i wouldn't be happy with it and then the playtesters wouldn't be happy with it and then i'd get to where i was happy and then the playtesters would go absolutely not that is way too powerful and (laughs) and what i what i really appreciated about james is i went okay I don't want to weaken this ability because it like I, I recognize what the playtesters are saying and I res- and I agree with that. Absolutely. And I think that they are right because they, they work with some amazing playtesters. Like they're so good. But I, I got to the point where I was like, but but their feedback has made it weak and fiddly and complicated to, to make it balanced. It had to get very complicated. So I said, James, I want to scrap this entirely and I want to do this instead. Uh, it was I had a very complicated ritual for the uh, the phonic scion. And I said, you know what I want to do? I want to do a, a speak with dead. I want you to be able to ask the soul questions. And James went, baller. 
let's do it. And like, <laughs> that's the kind of person you're working with. You you know, at the last stage, you can say, I don't jive with this. Can we do this instead? And as long as you're not burning the thing to the ground, you know, he's like, sick. Okay. That's, that's awesome. And I mean, I, I think, uh, again, let's, let's shift a little bit and talk about your design work because you don't only edit Arcadia, you also have had several articles in Arcadia. I remember, I believe uh, issue one was the yeah. Celestials, uh, the, mm-hmm. the two very high CR Celestials. Um, yes. And uh, so... Caviel and Anahita. Yes, yes. There's some really cool lore and some really cool stat blocks. I really appreciate them, and they're uh, going to appear in my <gasps> games at some point. Uh, it'll be fun. But I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about that because you're not only an editor, you're a designer too. And mm-hmm. so how does kind of having that editing background influence your design work? Having an editing background means, I think that, it means that I kind of, I know, I, cu- I approach design projects knowing sort of what the priorities are. Uh, being an editor, I know that people like usable content. They like straightforward, usable, easy to access content. And so when I'm designing, the big question on my brain is, how can I make this the most usable it can possibly be? And so when I, for example, with Ukaviel, right, it, it was like each of both of them have tactics, both of them have a story, and the story has has specific steps because I'm not just handing you two stat blocks and a sentence and saying, go wild. I'm saying, here's how I'm envisioning that you could use them. And if you decide to change that, that's cool. The more power to you. But I approach editing in a very, how can we take the burden off the DM? And that makes me approach design with, how can I take the burden off of the DM? How can I give them cool tools, right? That's really at the end of the day, what DMs want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool tools. They want the sickest toolbox. And uh and and that's that's a fun place to start designing at is what would be super fun for the DM. And for me, for my first article, it was what if I gave you two celestials that aren't necessarily just lawful good? What if I gave you a nuanced take on celestials? And then from Angelic Ancestries, it was, let's take, let's put a spin on Asimar. Like, I'm so tired of the three basic Asimar. Let's make four more. (laughs) (laughs) But also, you know, again, in design, it was like, well, we don't want to just give these player options. Let's give two NPCs as well as, you know, different ways those hooks could manifest as well as a look at how these, you know, lore about how they fit into the world that kind of thing like it's all very it's supposed to be and it's trying to be very usable so so when you when you sit down with with james or or any of the other designers do you start out by going i have this cool idea and you shoot for the moon and then you pull it back in or do you go in like initially with a pitch that's a little more um conservative conservative or balanced or what yeah whatever that's a really good question um what do i do i think 
And I don't know if there's a right or wrong response <laughs> yeah, to, no. to this at all either. It's, it's, yeah. I just thought it would be it'd be kind of interesting. Like, do you just go in and like, here's all here's my super cool idea. Here's <laughs> all the cool stuff I want. And then someone goes, great, that's awesome. That's horribly overpowered. And then <laughs> let's figure out how to pull it back. Or do you go in and go, OK, this sounds somewhat reasonable and cool. Yeah. I tend to go very big on ideas and very and more conservative with mechanical design because I, I I know the playtesters will be there to catch me if I fall, but I don't want them to do the design work <laughs> for me. So I will go in, you know, here is my super sick lore on who Ukaviel is. Here's my big story about how he was betrayed in heaven, you know, and James, here is a list of like seven different Asimar I could do. And I know I'll have to eventually pick four of them, but I'm really excited about all of them. <laughs> but then when I get to the stage of actually writing, you know, it's, I want the playtesters to, when we talk about, we have this saying in editing, which is um, an editor can only take it so far. So if, if you give me, if you give me a, a, a messy manuscript, I can make it good. But if you give me a really good manuscript, I can make it amazing because it's a question of where you're putting my focus. Am I, am I focusing on making it not suck or am I focusing <laughs> on polishing it? And that's how I feel about design work is I don't want the playtesters to be focused on fixing it. I want mm -hmm. the playtesters to be focused on perfecting it. So I will take that as far as I can. And when I'm eventually like, I don't know if this is balanced, that's when I hand it over to them and go, it's all you, boo. Yeah, oh, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah, this level one spell that has, you know, 8d20 damage, this might not be right. I don't no, know. Let's, let's dial that in a little. <laughs> but I love my my 28 first level spell. <laughs> Uh, no, no, that's that's super interesting. I think that's that's honestly a really great just overall design thing to keep in mind is designing to to where whoever you're handing it off to isn't going to have to go and focus fully on, oh my gosh, there's so many things wrong with this mechanically or there's so many things overpowered about this more the you probably want them more to go what's fun and what's not fun and yeah and not having to worry about the large swings either way yeah exactly i also like the idea that i could hand something to someone and it could be fairly mechanically sound but they could go oh it might be more thematic for the subclass if we tweak it just this little way or you know what if we give it this little like i want them to be able to think I don't want them to look at it and go, oh, what was she thinking? I want them to go, oh, interesting. Kind of a yes and thing. Like, mm -hmm. okay, what if we pushed it this way? That could be interesting and fit a little bit better. Um, and that's, you know, my, my goal is that by the time we get to print that I'm happy, James is happy, the playtesters are happy, and we have something that really, really sings. Now, just out of curiosity, when you go with design, um, like let, let's just use a subclass as an example. Do you, you know, you come up with something brand new, something very cool. Let's say, I don't know, a plant mancer. I don't know. I'm making crap up. Um, 
It, okay, not, okay. not a druid, but something that, I don't know, brings plants back to life that you control. I don't know. <laughs> something okay. new. No, I'm buying okay. it. Okay. Um, now, do you go, like, entirely brand new stuff? Or do you kind of look to other things for examples on, um, you know, things that you can do, like, that have similarities? Like, let's say you're looking at necromatic spells or something, and you just kind of twist them and alter them into this plant and a horrible idea but it's like you know new new plant-based thing or is it something where you'd say okay this is an entirely new thing it's something that i'm theming myself um i'm gonna you know throw what i can at it you know kind of tune it where it makes sense and then you know see how it plays out i have done both uh the one where you're leaning on old material is definitely less scary. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I I mean, yeah, I have tried designing subclasses where it's like, I am making up this entirely new mechanic. I don't know how this is going to go. Let's find out. And I've edited subclasses where it's basically entirely dependent on new mechanics. Um, I'm remembering... What was it? There's a druid in... I think it's the goldmonger subclasses that is absolutely fascinating because it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's a druid. Um, but it's like, there were, there take... were several, I, I believe in that. that yeah. Is based on the, the wealth. Yeah. I think it was yeah, a yeah. druid. You, you'd like take these gems and you embed them into your body and they do mm. certain things. And I was like, Whoa, okay. I have no precedence on how to edit this, but I'm going to try my best. And I, I think it turned out well. And, and that can be very fun and very challenging, but very rewarding when you get it right. Um, I do, I, if I'm trying to do fast work and if I'm trying to not drown in fear, I do look at already established things because I know that they worked and I know, I know that they've been tested by, you know, dozens upon hundreds upon thousands of people in their lifetime of being 5e material. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's something to be said for. We know that this works. True. Uh, that's interesting. It's, I guess, it's probably ends up being more like the whole time budget ideas yeah. type thing. You know, the pick, pick two. The pick two. Yep. The pick two. <laughs> I, I want to play around with making more mechanics, but it definitely does take more brain power because you have to think about how it interacts with almost every part of the oh, system. True. And and that can be challenging, you know, to you you draft something and then someone says, Well, how does that interact with this per this specific subclass that came out in Tasha's, you know, <laughs> that you barely know anything about? And you're like, Oh man, how does that interact with Tasha's? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, you know, that's oh, actually yeah. a, a- question i have too is you know how deep do you go I've, I've seen just random you know like youtube or tiktok videos about people like oh the player's handbook is broken because if you take a level seven wizard and a level six this and a level two that and this and then if you cast this on that then you can destroy the world Like there, there's there's seriously people who I, I've seen some videos where it's like you take like three or four different classes all together and like based on this feat and then this thing with you know this certain class or something it's like yeah you could do three hundred and seventy two thousand damage in one attack it's like why are you doing this Ben I'm gonna be completely honest with you I am not that kind of player and so I am not that kind of I can't think about that I don't know yeah, yeah I'm. 
so not the same way either. It's <laughs> just, just There curious. are people out there who have a very intuitive sense of how to absolutely break something. Oh, yeah. And I am not one of them. I am a design for flavor and prey. <laughs> you you just give the tools. Yeah. Let someone else let someone else break break it. And that's like, such and a good way to do it, it too. It's like, where's the fun and go with that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I actually really like seeing how people can take tools and like create monstrosities with them. It's it's a it's like a I could never do that, but I respect you. I, snap this system in half. I Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't have the time for that. No, same yeah. here. I, like I said, it's it's yeah. crazy. Some of these things I've seen, I I, I can't even oh name any of them because it's so crazy and out there. I'm like, why would anybody do this? <laughs> the the only one I could adequately explain is the the peasant railgun. You've both heard of the peasant railgun. No. <gasps> oh, <laughs> okay. No. Okay. 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 This is new. Okay. I'm excited. Okay. The peasant railgun um, is um, this is completely legal. Uh, rules is written, uh, and, and that is why it's so amazing. So, the idea is you hire. Okay, so you are I don't know a level fourteen fighter, and uh, I don't know whatever classes you want to be. I'm not going to tell you who you are. Um, <laughs> you hire every peasant you can find. Uh, you go to a village and you say, I will give you 50 gold each. By that point, you're probably rich. So I will give you 50 gold each to stand in a line. And you're like, okay. For for the base version of the gun, you need about 2,300 peasants. So <laughs> <laughs> um, you line them up, single file, forming a chain of peasants that are two miles long, each one occupying a five-foot space because they are medium creatures. Mm-hmm. Um you then get a pole. Uh, the most typical way to do this raw is to buy a standard 10-foot ladder and disassemble it, um, discarding the rungs and keeping the two 10-foot long wooden poles. And you give one pole to the peasant at the back of the line. You have every peasant ready their action to throw the pole at the enemy. Uh, or no, sorry. You you have the, the one at the front. You have the, the peasant at the front of the line ready their action to throw the pole at the enemy and every peasant along the line readies their action to hand the pole to the peasant in front of them because passing something is a free action, which means that on the next round, the peasant at the back passes it to the next peasant and so on triggering the readied action to pass the pole to the next peasant or so you're triggering the readied actions right which means according to raw all their readied actions are triggered meaning that the pole passes from the peasant at the back of the line to the peasant at the front who throws it at the enemy all in the span of six seconds and in order for the object to travel two miles in six seconds it would need to accelerate at a speed of roughly a thousand miles per hour uh which is enough force to obliterate effectively anything you throw it at uh you wait for the dust to settle you hand the second pole and you obliterate anything in your path and that is the peasant railgun it's that sort of stuff that i was talking about because it's so crazy wow uh my players no 
<laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I was just gonna be. I was just gonna be like, oh, you know, you can multi-class sorcerer and warlock and use your sorcery points to get the spell slots back. But you know, that's that's way. That's that's not anywhere near near a eleven hundred mile an hour piece of piece of ladder that flings. Yeah, like like closest I have. Chain is put skeletons in a bag of holding and then turn it inside out skeleton army like that's the best that i have that, that's, <laughs> that's not even creative at all <laughs> oh my gosh, my gosh. <laughs> it, like, i'm so glad i i know about the peasant railgun now <laughs> me too it's so good. like that's oh the kind God. of thing that like you have to have a certain kind of analytical mind to go, hold on a second. If everyone were to ready their action, they could all do it in the same round, which means that you could send a railgun over 2,300 peasants. Like, I don't know who thinks of that, but major props. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely wild. This oh my just, gosh. This is wild. Oh my goodness. Like nothing but respect for, those people oh, great oh. so now my big bad evil guy needs to just wipe out every single peasant that there is <laughs> alternatively your bad guy shows up with 2300, <laughs> 2300 hired 2300 peasants, peasants. <laughs> oh yes <laughs> you narrate like you see them at the end loading the ladder pole. <laughs> the ladder up. <laughs> you know your end is on the horizon. It's like okay, don't don't stand in any squares directly in front of them. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder what is what is the to hit on that? What is the to hit bonus on that though? Like a peasants to hit bonus has got to be super low. It's so, true. I mean, so it, it's, you'd it's almost, almost need a like... stationary structure because otherwise it'd be super hard. To hit like like a high AC monk or paladin or or something yeah. like that, it could be like a could almost be like a lair action. Like he's got two lines yeah, of peasant yeah. yeah. railguns yeah. up on these and, up on these. Yeah, and, and anytime you're like within five feet of their line ranges, you know they try to hit you. Oh lord! <laughs> yeah, make it a, make oh. it a saving throw. Yeah! <laughs> yeah, make it a saving yeah. throw. Super high, though, because oh, the speed is so much. Like, you're aware that you're in the space, and you have, you know, you've got to hit, Good. like, a, I don't know. 25, 25 saving throw. <laughs> yeah, because it Ryan. comes so fast. <laughs> Ryan, when you invited me on today, did you think we'd be talking about Prince No, in fact, in fact, I've completely <laughs> lost my train of thought, because all I can think about right now is, like, a bunch of peasants throwing things well, at 1,100 miles no, an hour. No, this, this is actually a perfect segue, because... Only the most dastardly evil villain would come up with something like this. <laughs> okay. Oh, Ben, that was beautiful. Oh. Well, let, let's do it. Let's do it. We can. I, I, I wanted to. I wanted to ask about like the, the publishing stuff, but this is more interesting. So, <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted Sadie to come on is because uh, every once in a while. She'll she'll go on Twitter and post these absolutely massive threads on just like cool stuff from a game she's done or like uh, stuff about characters or villains and stuff. And I was like, I need that brain energy over <laughs> here 
to, to, to talk about it. So memorable, memorable characters and villains. So yes. that would certainly be a memorable <laughs> villain. Oh my gosh. No question. A villain themed around the pheasant rail gun. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Well, that actually, I mean, that, that goes, that segues fairly nicely into some of my points. Um, so creating memorable villains uh, is definitely a, a challenge, but also I think very fun. And and so I've been thinking about some villains I created and why they resonated with the characters. And um, these are some of the things that I think make them stay. Um, for okay, you know that scene in Mega Mind where he's like, "I have something you don't have," and the guy's like what's that? And he's like, or I don't remember what the lead up line is, but he's like presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. such a good moment <laughs> that really, for me, captures actually a lot of what makes villains interesting is I think villains need a sense of gravitas that your average run of the mill character won't have. So if you have a, you know, an evil God, you know, that's obviously easy to have gravitas, but if you have like a cult leader or, um, you know, an evil archmage or like the, the leader of a, of a, um, a martial, a militia, martial state, what's that phrase? Whatever. Um, (laughs) like they all have to have a certain charisma and presence Mm -hmm. and gravitas. Um, like, and and for me, it lands somewhere between either they're smooth talking and charming and could easily be seen as not villains, or they will scare the crap out of you. Like, one of the two. And, and you'll notice that a lot of the effective D&D villains actually fall kind of in that same vein. Like, what do people like about Strahd? He has presence. He's... He's very clearly, he scares the crap out of you. He's very, very clever, but he's also, he's got a certain presence, which I think is really interesting. Um, I also think that the best villains come with ones that push and pull the characters a little bit in, in a few ways. Either they are related to the characters in some way, they're tied to them via plot, or they mirror them in some way, or they... You know, they offend them <laughs> early in the campaign, and from then on, it's personal. The The villains that, for me, fall the flattest are the ones that, yeah, they're doing scary things, but are they building a relationship with the characters? Mm-hmm. If they're just off over there doing their thing, that's one thing. But if your villain shows up, like, I, I introduced <laughs> this this woman. Her name is Verena, and she basically came on screen in a better outfit than what the bard was wearing. Uh, (laughs) And uh, she says, oh, you worship the Lady Fate? I'm going to dethrone the Lady Fate and just be a better Lady Fate. And I'm going to, and I'm better than you in every way. More eloquently than that, but that was the gist of it. It was like, I'm better than you. I know what you want and I'm going to take it from you. And and I'm going to do it with style. I have never seen... A player and a character hate someone so quickly. <laughs> the, the absolute loathing that manifested from that session was amazing. But there's also people, you know, like my cleric will talk all the time. One of the big bads in my campaign 
is an archangel who is trying to resurrect his evil god. And it's interesting the way that he parallels the cleric, because they both have a lot of faith. They both want, you know, they both very much worship something passionately. And they both think that they have a very clear idea, a clear vision of what the world should be. And when the player can see that you're foiling them in that way, like when the player can go, oh, I can see my character in the villain. That's an interesting moment to go, okay, what's separating my character from the villain then? Oh, that's super interesting. Just the the dichotomy between the two, or like, what would it take for them to be like me, or me to be like... Yeah, exactly. That's a really interesting moment. And... And you don't, I don't think you always need that for villains, you know, um, that's just some, those are the ones that become very memorable for the players. Another thing I think is that villains need to have, even if they don't have a sympathetic motivation, they need to have a motivation that the characters can understand or think about. I like, there's... There is a fun in a story of just, I am just evil because I like being evil because I like causing pain. But there can even be something very interesting in, uh, you know, in just asking, like, why? Why are you like that? Why why did you just take this course? And, and again, it doesn't even need to be sympathetic, but there, my, my big, big bad is an evil god who basically saw humanity, I guess mortal kind, because they're not all humans, so saw mortal kind and went, these guys are flawed. They are super flawed. I don't like them anymore. And I think (laughs) that they're not doing us credit as the people who created them. Like, I want to scrap them all and start over and make beings that are worthy of us. And the head god went, uh, no, I don't want to do that. And, uh... (laughs) So he rebelled against the Pantheon, and that is not necessarily, that's not a sympathetic motivation. It's not a motivation that means anything. But when you go through his temples and you get to see his pride and how he he views himself as an artisan and how he 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 craves beauty and he sees himself as the thing that can create perfect beauty, like... It's that kind of thing. It's the details. Like, he calls himself the artisan, and the players are like, oh, that's interesting. What does beauty look like to him? You know, like, why is something to him more beautiful than something else? And being able to dig into that is really interesting. You know, that makes me feel really good, because I had something similar, which was a a demigod who was seeking perfection, and uh, he was known as the architect, and he created the world, and and every time there was a flaw in it, he would destroy it and start all over again, until finally the Pantheon entrapped him, because he was just continuously just destroying the world over and over. So, so I did something good! (laughs) Yeah, I love it! One of the things I really love, uh, kind of, and it, I don't know if you necessarily directly mentioned it, but it's kind of woven through all the stuff you talked about, because you talked about the gravitas, the the presence, the, the charisma, and whatnot. One of the things, too, I found, and it was interesting because I had a, a conversation with one of my players from my, my first campaign. 
I ran. Uh, and that's, that's since ended. It was like a big three-year campaign. Uh, we ended at like level 14 or something like that. Um, and it's not just presence, but present. Um, it's, it's much more interesting and builds much more tension and relationship with the players. Not only that they're hearing about all the bad stuff that the, the bad guy's doing, but seeing it. And not yeah. even necessarily just seeing it, but seeing them do it. Mm -hmm. And so having mm -hmm. that uh, presence and being present, like um, I had in my second arc of my first campaign, I had a, a villain called the, the Harbinger. And it was just this super powerful red dragonborn that was um, kind of leading this army against a, a, a large city. And he listed the, the giants to, to help him out and, but the one of the very first things, uh, one of his things was they were planting mana bombs around the city that would just basically vaporize massive chunks yeah. of the city. One went off. Uh, the heroes tracked down the warehouse and he is there along with minions. And so they fought. He's very strong. They got him down and they they beat down his his. Uh, his posse basically to a point where he probably could have killed one or two of them before he went down, but he then took what he had and got away or ran mm -hmm. away. And the, like seeing the players try everything they could to keep him from getting out and then having him foil them. Uh, and thankfully good roles on my part, but then that, so it was an encounter, but it was an encounter that didn't fully end with a resolution. And so then having that uh, escalate uh, yeah. and then not being able to find him and then him fully invading the city with giants and they had to go into this giant mountain and uh, it was just a whole big deal. But it was very much they connect. He, he was telling me, I was like, I remember that villain the most because we hated him because yeah. of X, Y, X, Y, and Z that he did. And it, and they like went back and forth, like foiling some of the things and not being able to do some of the things all the way to the end of the last battle. Everyone is just going, going wild fighting, fighting this guy. And like the, our cleric and, and Ranger are helping heal people up and he's just getting so annoyed and he knocks our monks monk down. And I normally don't do this, but he just action, action, like yeah. stab, stab, no more death saves for you. You're dead type <gasps> thing. And so it, it was super cool because I don't think I could have done that with just anybody mm -hmm. and have it, had it be satisfying. But because yeah, yeah. of the buildup and the presence and all the stuff that had come before, everyone knew that's something he could do. And what they were doing was annoying him enough that he's just like, okay, you keep healing, no more healing for you type thing. And so yeah. it, it was it was a super interesting thing. And uh, and I don't know how much you if you've played World of Warcraft. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so one of the things I, I remember specifically back from Wrath of the Lich King was the Lich King was present 
during all the level up questing. You would see him appear. You would see him talking to his minions. You would see him doing things. They had the whole huge Wrathgate thing where he actually came out and made his presence known. And I was just that as you were talking about that, I was like, man, that's that's it. Like exactly what you're talking about. Like that villain has just been building and you've yeah. seen him and you'd seen the stuff he's done or heard the stuff or experienced it yourself. And then you finally get to the culmination where you battle him and you have a much more personal relationship. Yeah. My, my players were actually just telling me the other day that something that they really liked about Aravel, who was the angel was that he was present in a lot of the early campaign and they sort of had to earn his attention. Like in the beginning, he had that very like, you are mortals. You are not going to stop me. I don't need to care about, I don't need, I don't need to kill you. I don't need to care about you. I could kill you in a snap. What could you do? And they knew that, you know, they, they watched him unleash like a lightning bolt that downed like four of the, three of them in a line. So they knew he could kill them if he wanted to. And it was scarier for them that he didn't want to, that he didn't care. And the process of them over the last years of him showing up enough and them foiling his plans enough to make him take them seriously mm-hmm. was immensely cool. satisfying. Like yeah, the, yeah. that first moment where you realize where they realized that he finally saw them as a threat was so satisfying for them. Exactly. Uh, like I have to actually pay attention to you now because you are getting really annoying. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny because, you know, players, as they get, you know, attached to their characters and they go through and they develop them and grow them, they don't really see the fact that every sort of experience that they have with the villain you've created helps you define and grow them as well. You know, one of the things that Ryan and I have talked about many times before is just the the collaborative storytelling that happens in, you know, uh, tabletop RPGs and D&D. And the fact that, you know, you have this cool villain that, you know, you like, they're cool, you have ideas about them, you have a good motivation for them. But interacting with the players is really what gives them so much more of that gravitas and that, that hatred that they have towards the players. And, you know, yeah. just working together towards that makes them so memorable sometimes yes and and watching it's so funny when fun when like the players foil them and then they lash out in another way Mm -hmm. and you you get that push and pull like i remember when like they had stopped aravel a couple times he was starting to get really annoyed and so when they went back to therajar which was uh the home of my bard they found out that he had bought up her land and built a temple to his evil god on top of it. And she was so mad. Oh, no. Oh, oh that's her amazing. Face. And it's like, it's those little things. Like you said, that relationship where he can basically go, okay, is that how it is? Then that's how it is. Like, <laughs> She was so mad. And so they, you know, they planned, I think, if I remember right, they planned, they bought a, a bunch of bombs and they went and bombed the temple before they left town. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I love that push and pull, like, okay, you're going to do this to me. I'm going to do this to you. Okay, I'm going to do this to you. <laughs> like, uh, that's, 
that's that's that actually uh kind of brings up a really good point just from a villain standpoint so let's say uh we got a dm who's wanting to develop a villain um a lot of what we've talked about becomes much easier when the villain is significantly more powerful than the party is because uh, a lot of times especially if you're wanting the villain to be present if the villain is at that level where okay my current party could probably take him down it becomes really hard for you to go okay this is going to be more than a one one shot wonder (laughs) yeah yeah like if he's if he could just get a steamrolled in the the first encounter if there's a good chance that that even if the party takes some some losses that they could take him down just the first time he shows up that that makes it harder but like in your case you're talking about like an archangel type type (laughs) thing that like level ones fives and maybe even level tens probably have zero chance against so how do you how do you kind of make that interesting to where you know you have this villain who is so much more powerful how do you make that interesting versus having a villain that's more mortal and but is is doing things other ways like maybe a, a brilliant mind or or yeah, something yeah, like, yeah. like that okay yeah so i can answer that i'm oh, so excited um <laughs> so the thing that i do with aravel is that i every time he shows up it's not about defeating him it's about stopping what he's doing and and that's kind of the goal like if it, in technical terms the design goal of every encounter with him until they can face him is just to stop what he's doing which is very typically some kind of very important ritual um or like you know trying to murder the sovereign um you probably remember that story on twitter was that the one where they like the big dinner party or whatever yeah they they each had to like yeah. kind of went into like this kind of half initiative thing and just ask what half people initiative, wanted to do yeah yeah still challenge yeah 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 and so it, it wasn't defeat aravel it was stop him from murdering the sovereign and get the sovereign the heck out of dodge and that was really interesting um uh for, for those who don't follow my every tweet on Twitter, um, what we basically did is I, I ran a a sort of skill challenge where I was like, I'm going to narrate what Aravel is doing. One of you tell, like, you can use any spell, you can use any ability you have, you can use an item, I don't care what it is. Like, as just, you know, keep it to, like, what you could feasibly do in a turn. Um and I said, you know, you tell me how you're going to stop him. And so it's like, okay, you see him lunging for the sovereign. What do you do? And the fighter says, I'm going to use my maneuver that switches places with people. Cool. Make a roll for that. Uh, I think, or I, I don't remember what I had her roll, but it was like, okay, you, you swap places with the sovereign. Uh, okay, now he's going to go over and try to kill the person who's treasury. You see him throw his sword. What do you do? And the, and the ranger goes... He's throwing his sword, and I go, yeah. And he, she goes, okay, I have that, that thunderclap arrow that explodes when when it hits the ground. So I'm going to aim under the sword and knock it off track. And I was like, sick, okay, roll the hit. And she rolls like a 26, <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Nice. Um, 
And so she knocks it off balance. Well, then he pull, you know, he takes out a dagger and he goes, or no, he takes out a lash of black energy and he wraps it around someone else. And the bard goes, I'm going to counterspell. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, he said, or actually, I don't think that was the counterspell. Uh, she said, I forget what she did, but it was, it was like, it was that kind of push and pull where it was like, he was taking an action repeatedly and it wasn't like an initiative order it was a how do you stop him and it was so amazing to see the clever things they came up with like like that thunderclap arrow trick that was so clever um you know they were using spells they were using maneuvers they were using items they were like everything i I gave them total freedom and they were so creative with it um so on the on the flip side of that then have you have you had the scenario where he goes, okay, I'm just really pissed at you, so I'm just going to come kill you now. And it, the and the objective is survive. That was not, the end of the gala. Kill. Okay, yep. that was the end of the gala. <laughs> the, the dinner. Yep, that was the end of the dinner is they got all the royals out. And I went, okay, he's swinging at you now. And they went, run! <laughs> um, so, I mean, they were using, like, dimension door, stealth checks, um everything they could to get away. And that was really fun. And actually, interestingly enough, Ryan, I think that the answer to the opposite is kind of also the same because I don't tell my players this, they're going to listen to this and they're going to be so mad. Um, (laughs) But they, they recently had an encounter with a woman that they probably could, I mean, they could almost definitely kill her if they took her one on like four on one. There's no question. You know, she's she's one woman. She may be an incredible archmage, but she's one woman against sure. four level fourteen characters. Oh, What's yeah. she gonna do? Um But I get it was actually the same kind of scenario where I kept them from killing her by giving them something to do. It was basically she opened up four not portals like ritual circles that were draining power from the gods and i basically gave the players the idea that if they didn't disrupt that somehow so each one was being guarded by a fiend and it was like if you don't disrupt that she's going to take your god and seal them and make off with their power and so they didn't even think of fighting her they were like we got to close these portals and um they did it was actually a pretty clever bait and switch um, because I made the cleric think that one of the portals was his god, and it was someone else. And meanwhile, in the building, they took their eyes off her. It was really bad. Like, they, for several rounds, they did not ask me where she was. They did not ask me where she, what she was doing. They were so focused on defeating these fiends and closing these portals. And I, I was like, you hear a scream from inside the building, and I could, like, see the players, the player's face just drop. Like, oh crap we took our eyes off of s-sphere and he books it he dimension doors he has a cloak of dimension door he dimension doors to the top of the building and runs but it's too late he walks in and she has his god by the throat and she shoves him in a seal like uh, a ceiling circle and oh. like turns to the cleric and is like peace and like <laughs> and like teleports away and and so like you know, it, it, manipulating the encounter in either direction so that the player is not directly engaging 
the bad guy is an easy way to either keep the players from getting nuked or keeping the bad guy from getting nuked. Sure. No, I think, I think that's, that's brilliant. Um, and you could easily use that for something, even, even, uh, even a villain that didn't necessarily have a lot of power, quote unquote, uh, like not necessarily spells or whatever. Um, just having them, have the upper hand in other ways for either things the player cares about the players care about or it's the whole you break you bust into the mansion they're sitting behind the desk and they're just like we're gonna kill you and it's like okay you can kill me but if you do then xyz happens and this village just gets destroyed and this Mm -hmm. mountain drops Mm -hmm. on this thing and so, you know, take the assassin pick. kills your family, yeah. you know? Yeah, you've got mm, 20 minutes, it looks like, uh, before we can stand around talking or you can go do your thing and I can do my thing. And so, yeah, no, I think I think that's that's brilliant. Uh, I think that's a, a wonderful mechanical uh, piece that people can take and use. Uh, and in, in some ways... Uh, you said level 14 in these higher level games, it's not necessarily just about the fight. Mm-hmm. It's about the fight is the secondary while all these other things that may be yes. going on are primary and making yeah. those types of um, the uh, what's, what's the word it, it it's um, the decision, like the decision-making rather than just the brute strength. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like the tactical like you want your villains almost need to be very tactically brilliant because mm-hmm. on on you know a metal on a meta level once the pcs start getting high enough level there is not a single enemy nope. they can't beat and nope. so the the question is what what other chess moral pieces do you quandaries have yeah moral quandaries, that's, moral that's quandaries. like do you have moral quandaries do you have tough decisions like uh, I made a fiend fight last session more interesting by giving the basically they couldn't just hit the fiend because he 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 basically he had a couple of civilians in his hand and he was one turn away from eating them and so it became a game not of like oh deal damage to the fiend but ah get the civilians out of his hand which <laughs> that requires a completely different skill set you know you can't inflict yeah, a completely wounds different line of thinking <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that it's it's a very interesting game of like oh my gosh you know it's I'm getting to the point where I'm almost like afraid of how competent and powerful my PCs are and <laughs> <laughs> staying one step ahead of them is yeah that's I'll tell you that's hard. tough it's real tough it's... I need to get much better at being more tactical because mm-hmm. the the thing is is you know like when it comes to you know combat or you know just confrontation and everything you know. I try to have, you know, different things going on, but it's nowhere like what I know what's going on in the actual world. Like I can have chess pieces all over the world happening all, all at the same time. And, you know, if one of my players, uh, you know, does like a scrying spell on his father, I know what's happening, you know, all that stuff is in motion and I know where it's going and all that. But once you bring, bring it down to like that micro level, I'd for some reason just forget that ability so like this has actually inspired me a lot to be able to have so much more going on with you know a lot of the encounters because my players are definitely getting higher up they're 11 right now 
And oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's getting to that point because I mean, they, they just had a vampire fight that took a round because the the paladin, you know, crit in through a, yeah. <laughs> a slide in there. I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, great. You do 88 damage uh, in one turn on him because it's it's radiant and he's a vampire. Of course, that's going to happen. So, yep. Yeah, and you can't you can't be too hard on yourself either. And this is just for all DMs. You can't be too hard on yourself either because you are one person. You are one person with one brain, mm-hmm. and your players are multiple people with multiple brains working together. Oh. Use three to five <laughs> or six people against your one thing, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. Like it doesn't matter how smart your villains are in game. Unfortunately. Like they're limited in some ways by you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this is as inspirational as you want it to be. I know, I know. <laughs> well, and, and, I, I, and that's why. It for a second. <laughs> and, you know, it's 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 it's. But I, it's more just a, don't beat yourself up because yeah. it doesn't matter. Like if my character is a twenty int character or something like that. In game, they can be as smart as possible, but I'm I'm still limited. I'm still me. At the at the end of the day, so if if something falls flat or something doesn't work out quite the way you want it to, or or something that you thought would be super super cool or super strategic gets outmaneuvered by your players or something, it's it's okay. It's it's not a bad thing because you at the end of the day you are just one person and you can only do so much. And as long as your players are having fun. That's that's what matters. And and I mean, let's be real. How good does it feel as a player to outmaneuver somebody who's supposed to be very smart? Yep. Uh, you know, I love it when they get those moments. I remember um, I I had set up this situation I thought would be kind of tricky, where a king was being puppeted by his two advisors, who were basically evil angels holding the disguises of his advisors. And I don't remember what spell it was, but my cleric walked in cast a really good spell to basically drop their disguises i it might have been moonbeam i like it was a completely random spell that i didn't anticipate and it like it worked so in front of the whole court you know all of a sudden these two like mean looking angels are sitting there and i'm like okay (laughs) we're running with it but the player (laughs) i mean the player talked all session after about how cool that moment felt for her and like she walked in, she had a plan and it worked. And and that joy of, of letting them have that victory, I mean that that feels better to me. Oh, so much. Yeah. Than than being able yeah. to be like, oh, I, the omnipotent DM, outmaneuvered <laughs> you. Yeah. And I mean, and that's where some of the, the, the best times happen. The players absolutely love it. Plus, that's where some of the most creativity can come in on a DM's part too, is just completely rolling with something that was never expected. And the opportunity for different storytelling moments and, and, you know, just weird things to happen from that point on turns into just an absolute blast on the DM side as well. Like, I love it when my my players just really completely outthink me in some sort of way. Like, apparently it's a theme where they die in one round or two rounds. But um, like there was a Beholder fight (laughs) where they used Shatter on the top of a temple and it just annihilated this beholder and again the, oh. the the paladin jumped right in and uh 
<laughs> cleaned it up. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's like they talked about it before. They had a really good plan. The roles followed through with it. And I'm just like, yeah, you come up with a really cool idea. Why would I ever say no? It's something that's really neat that I would love to see happen. Yeah, that's so cool. I've never thought about using shatter on a building. Oh, yeah, it, it was oh, horrible. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> Although, I will say, as a DM, it is fun every once in a while when you get that moment where your players all just go, <gasps> Yes! They didn't realize, because you did outmaneuver them, because it, it happens a lot less than them outmaneuvering you. So yeah. whenever it well, does happen, you, you just got to enjoy it a little. Well, yeah, that's what that Esphere encounter was for my players, because uh, like yeah, so we talked about it after, and it was like, I never lied to them. I never said that that portal was sealing Nios, which is the cleric's god. You know, I never, they, you know, they never asked me where she was. That was on them. They never, they stopped watching her. They took the, her, eye, their eyes off her and they were so focused. The The funniest thing about that was that she mocked them with that as they approached her. She said, you're so easy to predict. You're so easy to distract. And they kind of went, oh, that's a weird line. And like... What is she talking about? And then she predicted them, away. distracted them, and then sealed the cleric's god. That's so and, good. Like it's and and again, like that's the kind of thing that they talk about too. Like that feeling of like we got got. You know, they yeah. talked about that for days after. Yeah, and that just and that anytime you can get that kind of emotional investment from either either direction, mm-hmm. like you know you're doing it. That's that you're doing it right. Like that's, that's exactly, exactly the way uh, that we all try and shoot for is that emotional investment of ourselves and the players and just the buy-in to the story. And once, once you get that, like you can just take that game to the next level mm-hmm. because you just can share those emotional experiences between the characters and the antagonists. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, Sadie! I feel like we, we could just, just talk we about just this talk, forever. We could just talk about this for forever, oh, but I don't. Man. I don't want to keep you. I don't want to keep you for forever. Uh, as as fun as that would be. Um, so I guess, I guess uh, this is this. That was a really good discussion. Thank you. Um, yes, that was Thank that you. was awesome. Love all the examples. Love all the, the the stories and stuff. And maybe we'll get to hear a little more before we go. But. Um, <laughs> Yes. One of the things uh, I want to do before we we jump down to the kind of our game stuff is I wanted to kind of uh, uh, throw it to our community content shout out, which there's there's a little bit of stuff. Um, Taldori Reborn just came out. The Critical Role, uh, the redo of the original Taldori campaign guide. You actually had a little bit to do with that book as well. You did some playtesting on it. Yeah, did some playtesting. Uh, subclass uh items and uh some monsters very cool i got that... my my poor uh my poor cleric got her butt whooped uh in one of those fights <laughs> so you know josephine this is for you <laughs> <laughs> uh but that is that is out now you can get that from your friendly local game store if they're part of the darrington press guild or just directly from the darrington press website uh it looks incredible. Mine is on order and has not gotten here yet. Uh, but the art is oh, they just they just 
really outdid themselves on the art. So good. I can so confirm good. from my copy that it is. Yes, you got fantastic. your copy already, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and also, uh, as we've mentioned before, uh, Kobold Press, one of the other large publishers of fifth edition, third party publishers of fifth edition content, has a new Kickstarter out right now that just started a few days ago. They are kickstarting their Tome of Beasts 3, which uh, there are two other ones, uh, as well as a creature codex. Uh, some of my absolute favorite third party monsters to use and if especially if you have players that just know the monster manuals backward and forward uh the kobold press stuff is super awesome to throw some interesting unknowns uh at people and they are incredibly well designed so we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well uh sadie you have done so much stuff uh (laughs) you have you have dms guild stuff Uh, and i know we didn't get to talk about this too much earlier but you have dms guild stuff uh, that you've done. Uh, we had mentioned, I think, uh, many moons ago, the deck of multitudinous things. Yeah. Um, that's on the DMs guild. Uh, of course, all your MCDM stuff and you, and I, I wanted to mention this cause I know we couldn't talk about it much at all, but you are actually writing on the writing team for critical presents call of the nether deep, which is coming out in March. Yeah. I know you can't say too much, but Ah! I'll I'll let you, I'll let you just get excited and hype, uh, (laughs) promote whatever you, whatever you want right here. Oh gosh. What am I allowed to say about call of the nether deep? Um, so this is critical roles, first adventure book. And what I think is so cool about it, um, NDA don't strike me down, but what what I think is so cool about it is that it is it has more of an emotional core than I have seen in a lot of published adventures. It, it from the very from from the 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 foundation of its story, it is an empathetic, heart wrenching emotional story that spans so many vibrant and interesting areas. I can't wait to see what people think of, of Ankarel, especially with all the work that Mackenzie de Armas has done on it. It's, it's amazing. But so um, I can talk more of, I think about what I wrote on it uh, uh, after it publishes in March. Um, but it is legitimately so cool. I think the team really reached for the stars in terms of, you know, how could we do justice to this incredibly vibrant world that Matt created and this this emotional, important story um, and these really cool locations like I, I the nether deep, y'all, the nether deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so good. <laughs> ah! and, and, uh, most of the locations in the book they have only really touched on in their own campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like we've mm-hmm. been to Ankarel a little bit in campaign one, um, but like from that, that whole Marquette angle and everything like that. And Netherdeep is something completely, completely yeah. new. Like there's, there's a ton of stuff. If you're, especially if you're really into that critical role world and you've got now this new Tal'Dorei guide, you've got the Forest yeah. guide to wild Mount. So the world is getting fleshed even though this is not like a, a setting book necessarily it's it's still fleshing out this world mm-hmm. so especially all those who are running campaigns in exandria uh it's just a really cool addition plus you get a yeah. cool story yeah it's such a cool story it's such a cool location like cool locations plural 
so please look out for that in March. Uh, please tell me what you think of it, especially if you like it. If you hate it, um, maybe don't tweet that at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I, I'm genuinely so excited to see what people think, because I think it is a very unique story. Cool. Um, you uh, can also, um, I did have those angelic ancestries come out in Arcadia 11. Uh, if anyone wants to check out new Asimar um, options, they're called Scions because of the OGL and they have a few differences from Asimar. But if you like angels, um, I just published that and I think they're pretty sick. Um, I get the feeling you like angels. I love angels. <laughs> <laughs> I love celestials. I think that I think that the Forgotten Realms can treat celestials a little bit one note. Mm-hmm. And I am here... <laughs> To stop that from happening. Well, I, I mean, if you if you do throw it out there, if you do a celestial book, I would buy that. We need okay. we need honestly, five E needs more celestial. Yes, like five E is actually very light on official yes. content for celestials. Yeah, so That's... that would be super cool to have or yeah. to see more of that stuff. One of my goals is definitely to like find a platform. I guess like. Do I do I do it on my own? Do I keep publishing through Arcadia? I don't know. But like my one of my big goals is to, you know, to flesh out Celestials because I think they're so much more interesting than 5e really like showcases that they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, a f- couple other shout outs. Uh, Uncaged Goddesses is coming out soon ish. Uh, I don't have a date on that yet. Uh, we're waiting on some printer proofs, but um it's looking really good, uh, and that'll be on DMs Guild uh, probably in the next couple months or so. Is that um, the one that has the one through twenty? Uh, it is adventure? all tier four adventures. Yes, all tier. Yeah. Four. See that I, I I remembered seeing something about uh, the new uh, Uncaged because that, that caught my eye because I absolutely love tier three tier four content, and I don't think it gets enough. Not even necessarily enough credit, but there's just not a lot of content for it. And the content that is there is very, is not the most DM friendly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it is harder to jump into tier three, tier four. It is. You have to have strong story hooks and you have to have people that have (laughs) played a little bit because jumping into (laughs) a tier three or four character can be very overwhelming. Just a uh, touch. Even even for yep. people who have played before. So I I, I love I love the yeah. fact that there's going to be some tier 4 adventures. There's tier 4 adventures, there's advice in the beginning of the DM for running tier 4 adventures. Um and this I think this is need. a pretty cool book. Um I wrote the adventure on Mistra, um the Lady of Magic. So I'm very excited about that. Um anything else I can think of? Um also uh, an uh an adventure book that I edited uh, for a com- uh, a group of creators known as Yellow Madhouse. Um, they are, uh, they just ran a Kickstarter for an adventure called, they just, I mean, time is a void. It was definitely. Time is a void. Uh, this is definitely not just, but they ran a Kickstarter for um, a Slavic adventure, an adventure based on Slavic folklore um, called the devil's bridge. And uh, I, that, I don't know when exactly when that'll be coming, but it should be coming soonish. And uh, I, having finished edits on it, it's so full of like folklore and love and love of those stories. And uh, I think it's pretty sick. So uh, I definitely think that the creators are worth checking out, and uh, the, you can kind of 
go on their Kickstarter page and if you look up the Devil's Bridge, uh, a Slavic adventure, and it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I, I think that's everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so where where can people find you on the socials if they want oh. to come come say hi or or follow when you post really cool dinner party threads? <laughs> yes. Um, so I am uh, at incandescent. It is the word incandescent with an A stuck before the E because I was being artsy when I made it. Um, so <laughs> at incandescent on Twitter, I will show up as Sadie. Um, you can also, I guess, follow me on Instagram uh, under Sadie Your Lady. I'm posting pictures again. Um, okay. uh but yeah, Twitter is my main one, and uh, I love to chat on people, ch- chat with people on there when I'm not drowning in work. Awesome, man! Ah, oh, there's so many cool projects. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna have to have to save my pennies for DMs Guild stuff and yeah. all the cool things coming out. Ah, oh, there's just so much, so much cool stuff. I wish I had more time, more time to run games and I incorporate know. all the cool things. I know if I if I could get paid to just run games. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Uh, the dream. Oh gosh. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, we will try and make sure uh, we have links in the show notes to all of those cool things uh, on dndiscussions.com when the episode drops. So you can head over there and be able to find links to click on and grab any of this stuff, and then call the Nether Deep, of course, coming out in March. Um, cool. So before we go, we usually talk a little bit about what's going on in our games. And uh, I know you said early, uh, before we started recording that you were going to have to <laughs> oh, no. think about which story, which story to tell. And so, you know, oh. you've had, you've had all episode, right? You weren't doing anything else. So. I wasn't doing anything else. Yeah, nothing else. Uh, so have you done it? What's, what's been fun or interesting lately in your um. sessions? Gosh, um, do you want like an emotional story or do you want kind of a funny story? Sure. <laughs> both? <laughs> you want both? Well, mine's a boring uh, story, so, you know, either of them is going to be better. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so we, we actually, it's kind of momentous. Um, so I introduced a character early campaign. His name is Phelan. And uh, to, to kind of condense his story down, um, he was uh, he was an assassin sent to kill the cleric by the cleric's evil dad. Um, and um, recognizing that this assassin had been manipulated by his father as much as, as he had, um, the cleric chose to spare him and to try to, to save him and to, you know, try to kind of come to terms, you know, to, to, to find a middle ground. And uh, over the course of the campaign, we've been playing this game for like three years at this point. So over the course of this very long campaign, they have become not just friends, but they're, they're effectively almost like brothers at this point, Lorian and Phelan. Uh, Lorian found out early on that one of the reasons that Phelan, one of one of the kind of the past pain points for Phelan was that his fiance uh, was dead. Uh, her name was Anya, and she was a druid. Um, and she was appearing to Lorian in dreams, basically saying, "I'm I'm worried about Phelan. He's losing his way. He doesn't seem like himself. Please help him." 
Um, and Lorian decided early on as the cleric that he was going to resurrect Anya as soon as he had the ability to take resurrection. And this is not something he told Phelan for a long time. But uh, the player told me, she said, Sadie, when we get to level 14, I am getting some diamonds. I am marching into Raymont, And no matter what you do, I am resurrecting Anya for him. And I went, Bang. okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and so it's taken us, you know, a long time to get here. Because, I mean, this happened at, like... They met Phelan at, I think, level three, four. <laughs> um, wow. And they're 14 now? Yeah, they're 14 wow. now. And wow. so it, it through this, so they needed to capture the city of Raymont, uh, which was being sort of led by Lorian's, uh, like, evil dad. But we decided somewhere in there that he was less evil and more redeemable now. So, like, his kind of evil dad. Uh, <laughs> so they captured the city of Raymont. And one of their terms of surrender is you take us to Anya's body. Uh, and so last session we got to like, legitimately, this just feels like the culmination of so many years of storytelling. Cause they go in, they, they capture the city of the Remont, they force Lorian's dad to surrender. They make this one of their terms. They go down into the, to the catacombs underneath, um, the white spires and they, they take off the, the top of the coffin of Anya's coffin. And they realize that Uthir left the, engagement ring around her skeletal finger so they like get super choked up and then oh, they gosh. they start the the one hour ritual to resurrect her uh and um you know i asked the player what Lorian is thinking and feeling and we talk about how this is a culmination of so much about his relationship with Phelan, how far they've come his relationship with Anya's spirit uh his relationship with his father and how we're we finally sort of started that in a direction where maybe this family can heal and we're finally closing the the pages on on this on this chapter on on Anya and Phelan and you know we we go through that resurrection um Anya comes back she and Phelan like run to each other and like everyone was crying it was such a cool moment after two years of planning for this that's so cool um and so that that's my emotional story is Anya's resurrection was as beautiful as we were hoping it would be um my funny story is uh I have in in the campaign that my friend Amber runs I have a very French cleric um who <laughs> Uh, the the ongoing gag with her, she's an archaeologist, but the ongoing gag is that if she she finds things that historically imply that two historical figures were close, she automatically assumes that they're lovers, uh, <laughs> and that they were lovers, and that that is undeniable archaeological fact. Oh, yeah. And so I agree. Yeah, they were obviously lovers. And so she she has a she's an Asimar, so she has a an archangel named Suriel who is their the relationship is interesting because Suriel used to be like the goddess of champions and warriors and now she has this farm girl archaeologist who <laughs> is just kind of goofy and very loving and very silly. Um and so they're they they've clashed a little bit. So so Adrastea finds some stuff about her archangel, about Suriel, and about uh the the archangel that was working alongside her named Harel. And she's like, 
I think they were lovers. And like, and the party, the party is like, you can't say that to her. And she's like, why not? And they're like, you can't just ask your archangel if she had a lover. And she's like, why not? And uh, they had to last session. Incredible. Uh, last session, they had a uh, a very they they sat her down and they they laid out. I'll just say these are the reasons you cannot ask your archangel if she and Harail were lovers and <laughs> it was a conversation that took like 10 minutes and I don't know how this ongoing gag got this far but it's so funny that's fantastic it's usually, Both of them good that's stories. usually what happens they just evolve into their own <laughs> their own beasts at some point and then they can't be controlled she found out later she found out later that session that Harail is maybe trapped in hell and that like Suriel is like grieving him and doesn't know how to get to him so it was like a oh I'm really glad I didn't ask if they were lovers that's a sore spot oh gosh <laughs> so oh, in- my goodness. so instead of being like were you two lovers is that what this is now the conversation is hey um do you want help getting your maybe lover out of hell can I help with that <laughs> Uh, but in the most diplomatic, please oh, yeah. don't smite me way possible. Oh my Definitely. gosh! Wow, that sounds that sounds amazing. Those are great, <laughs> great stories. But I mean, just the culmination of anything that has played out over two years is just mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, that's just so cool. That's 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 why I love these types of games. You can't you as much as I love video games. You can't get that in a video game. Yeah, just, you not just in the can't. same way. Not in the same yeah. way. No. Yeah, in video games, there, yeah, there's player choice, but there's no such thing as player choice like there is on a, a TTRPG. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ben, you have to follow that up. <sighs> yeah. Well, like I said, it's boring. So you know, I've already prefaced that. Um, so the the previous session uh, to the one the last one that we had, uh, you know, my players destroyed that vampire. It was great. A week went past. Um, and, uh, so my paladin's been having these dreams about this sword in, you know, seemingly some sort of volcanic area. That's like part of a treasure of, you know, I don't know, maybe a dragon or something. Um, and they have this benefactor in the town that they're in who has been doing research, trying to figure out where this cave might be. And in return for doing that, they said that they would go on, you know, a a little quest for him. Uh, basically he found this uh, dig or, or an archaeological dig site that is potentially this lost dwarven city and Ooh. it's supposed to have like this this um, relic of creation artifact in it and he's trying to get it so that he can keep it safe for whoever like its chosen champion is because our cleric has one he's a chosen champion for his god the, the paladin thinks that this dream that she's having about the sword is kind of her calling to, you know, a, a, a champion type weapon, too. So he thinks that, you know, Burden's hammer, it, it's called the, the uh, uh, shoot, I forgot what it's called. Anyways, it doesn't matter. It's a special <laughs> hammer. Um, he thinks that it's in this lost dwarven city. So he was going to have them go kind of explore, see what they can find. 
Um, so the session begins and he calls them to his manor to kind of talk about it, goes over some stuff, you know, that he had found in, in researching. He knows the name of the dragon, who it is. And he's like zeroing in on where this, 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 you know, layer is. But in the meantime, he's gotten word from this dig site that miners have started going missing. They, he, uh, a group of, of uh, mine or diggers has gone in, disappeared. They sent a, a second one in to try to find out what's going on disappeared so now they've gone you know a nice two-day ride out there um showed up got some information went down inside you know just kind of this entryway you know the, you know went down some ropes and everything they found these these big groups of skeletons um or you know just like living or walking skeletons or whatever but they're all just kind of like staring at these crystals you know without really uh, interacting whatsoever with the party party went through i mean a clerk walked up and you know turn undead or destroy undead because you know the level he's at and you know they just decimated all of them they ended up taking the crystals like putting them in their bag of holding and then you're like okay well first of all let's hope that doesn't destroy us or kill us or you know do something horrible because they have no <laughs> idea what they are um and then we ended the session with them they started walking deeper into the this lost city so okay, okay. yeah it's a mystery we're gonna see there's, what happens there's stuff there's stuff coming nice cliffhanger yeah uh ryan knows what's coming next session uh I i'm, I'm in, so excited in the off chance that i'm sick and can't run it this weekend i'm not gonna say it because <laughs> i don't, don't <laughs> want to spoil this comes out on monday <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to uh the session and with the uh, stuff that's coming up cool so yeah uh, Ryan, what about you? I know that uh, you've been uh, busy with the, with the D&Ds. I have. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the best story is, it, it is a funny one because uh, we just, uh, my, my first group basically just wrapped up a, a big arc. They'd been out in the north for a while, uh, clearing out this crashed outpost with all this weird technology because um, they're a mercenary group. Uh, and so... They ended up being able to clear everything out. Um, one of them actually decided to stay in the north because his Goliath was from there and stay on and uh, be security for uh, the expedition and the archaeologists that were going to come in from this big benefactor uh, named the Watcher, who's basically just this enigmatic figure no one's ever seen, but he runs this massive mercenary black market just kind of hands and everything type organization. Um, and so they stepped into a portal. And one of the reasons one of my players wanted to switch characters. And I was like, that's great. I think, I think we can make that work. Uh, we'll leave this guy there and that'll be a kind of a fitting end. So there was tearful goodbyes and uh, little emotions. And then they stepped through this portal to uh, a different city that the that the mages did and it's fun because this city was actually pretty much leveled in my first campaign and oh. so this campaign is taking place in the same world and the same continent and was running it was running parallel for a little while before the first one wrapped up and so they're actually seeing some of the uh some of the basically repercussions of my first campaign which is super Whoa. cool so um 
the cleric is uh, in my party is from the city. It's a it's called Erangel, and it's very much like a religious hubbub city. There's temples to and and churches and all sorts of stuff to all sorts of different gods. It's a very like religious fluid type type city. Uh, it basically got leveled because of a corrupt church and demon summoning, and it it brought in some really bad things and the avatar of the blood god got summoned and it was a whole big thing and that's what my first campaign dealt with and so now they're this campaign is seeing the aftermath of all that stuff so they step into this place in the city that has been ruined and is slowly rebuilding and my cleric is trying to figure out are my parents still alive uh and that sort of thing so they get through and uh, to the funny part of this is my cleric was originally a cleric of Lyra, the goddess of joy. And so uh, as time went on, uh, he, he plays a little more of a dour character. And so he ended up switching his allegiances to the Raven Queen. Um, no one else knows that, though, back in his city. And so... I, I had made a point to have a little roll table to see if somebody in the city recognized him as they started walking around. I hit a natural 20 right away. And so Buttercup, priestess of uh, the goddess Lyra, ends up seeing him, recognizing him coming over, just this super bubbly, very excited, the glass is always full, full type type person. Um and it's just like, hey, you got to come, come help in the, the temple. We, we're healing all these people. There's so many injured uh, from from the destruction that just happened in the army and the massive battle that that just took place. And the whole time he's just like, uh. <laughs> and so he is able to get to the to to an end. He's just like, wait outside for a second. I'll come with you go upstairs and he turns to the rest of the party and goes, we have to leave. We have to get out of here right now. Like let's throw a rope down the window and let's, let's leave. And everyone else is just like, no, 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 it's fine. You know, just we'll hide your Raven queen symbology and, you know, tuck it yeah, in. Yeah. And... <laughs> so they go, they go down and it turns out that uh, Reza, who was his mentor is leading the temple there. And so she's just like, oh, we'd love to have you back. You should come come back and join us. And he tries to, as much as he can, play it off as I'm, I'm on, you know, really important mission and stuff. Like, can't do it right now. I I'm sorry. And so he, he ends up rolling really well. And they're all real. Uh, they're fairly convinced. They're just like, oh, it was good to see you. Please come help when you can. And then I told them to roll a percentile. And I'm and I'm thinking, he, he wants to roll low. Mm -hmm. In this in this case, he rolled a ninety four. Oh no! <clears throat> so Buttercup comes and he's just like, I, I I saw you didn't have your your holy symbol, so she gives him a <laughs> necklace that has the the three stars of Lyra oh, on it. Oh no! And as she puts it on, it burns to ash and floats away. <laughs> oh no! And he just bolts out of it he just like takes off running out of it everyone is just stunned the rest of my group like out of character are just dying laughing and he's just he's just running away and they have to catch up with him the 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 other uh priestesses don't don't give chase um but 
but it was just there's potentially going to be repercussions now that because that's not supposed to happen to the to a cleric yeah. of, your, of your goddess and oh, it was God. hilarious because the next day he made he made food and water uh and every time he touched the food and water it made it like turned stale and bad it was just like oh someone's in the doghouse with the raven queen (laughs) so oh it was it it could not like honestly between the roles and so it just could not have worked out it's just how that usually ends up it could not have worked out more perfectly it was super funny kind of a hilarious kind of heartfelt type session and so they're they're going to be um, they took a contract. They're going to be going and clearing out some of the the demon pockets that are still left uh, throughout the city. They're still a danger to the the people there, and they're going to go try and find the the cleric's manor home and see what happened to his parents and stuff. So, and maybe deal with fallout of switching <laughs> switching goddesses. I don't know. So. That, that was oh. it was a super fun super fun set, hilarious session that's uh, great very cool yeah uh, all right well i think we made it i think we did it sadie <laughs> oh my gosh thank you so thank much thank you thanks for, for chat- sticking around so long abso- too <laughs> an absolute treat an oh. absolute treat it's super it was a super treat for me too like again thank you so much for having me this has been so fun it, it has been just an absolute blast uh sharing stories and uh talking about uh rail guns and and (laughs) the peasant rail gun oh i will never be able to forget that now that's (laughs) that's so that's so incredible i need to work that i don't know how i'm gonna work it in come into dm's guild a villain themed only around the peasant rail gun (laughs) yes oh my gosh (laughs) i'd buy that in a heartbeat his name is rayleigh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> or riley if you want to be subtle about it riley oh my yeah, God. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay uh, well ben uh why don't you tell everybody where we can be reached and then bet. we can go to bed or something uh, you know, it, <laughs> it, if you want to tell us about your experience with the peasant railgun or you know any of your own campaign <laughs> stories go ahead and send those emails to us uh send those to dndiscussions at gmail.com um, of course, if you have some, uh, you know, more short form storytelling that you want to tell us, guess what? We're on Twitter. We are at DN Discussions. It is the best place to find us because uh, we usually answer that a lot faster than we do the email. Uh, well, I mean, we both have access to both, but, you know, email being email, we don't check it every single day. Anyways, um, if you're looking for Ryan specifically, though, you can find him on Twitter. He is at TBKZord. If you're looking for me, I'm at Ben Bumhofer. And of course, if you're listening to this and you're like, this is a pretty darn good show. It's the first time I've ever heard them. Well, guess what? There are 60 other episodes out there. You can find those on your podcast player of choice. So basically, if you're listening to my voice right now, there's 60 other episodes in the exact same place. Uh, Now, if you're wondering why we think we're good enough to talk about D&D, well, pretty much anybody is. But even more so, if you want to hear us play, 
you can find us on a uh, persistent campaign called Plus Five to Hit. Uh, currently, we're going through Rhyme of the uh, Frost Maiden and really enjoying it. Uh, unfortunately, Ryan wasn't there in the, the most recent episode we recorded. That's sad. But boy, oh boy, did it end up uh, going some pretty cool places near the end. So definitely check that out. The new episode's going to come out sometime in the future. I never know when it releases because I'm on the show, so I don't listen to it. <laughs> but <laughs> um, check that out. And of course, again, Sadie, thank you so much for joining us. It has been yes. an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure was all mine. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so yeah, everybody, you know, until next time, be good to each other. Take care. And we'll see Bye. you. Bye. Just in time for like a motorcycle to drive by. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> <laughs>